0: If you have a Bible, you could open it up to 1 Samuel, because that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be actually sort of um, covering quite a bit of 1 Samuel, a couple of chapters, um, but we're not going to be talking about every part of it in detail, reading through every part of it in detail, and just sort of talking about what happens in here. And so, above all else, I would I would strongly recommend, uh, encourage you to, uh, this week, uh, take some time to actually read through these chapters uh, yourself. It's not that much. Um, and, uh, and if you have a scripture journal, you can Write about, you can, you can write in your scripture journal while you read it, so it's great. You carry it around with you. You don't have to take the whole Bible, just that one little thing. Um, as though we don't all just read our Bibles on our phones anyway, you know. So um, I would encourage you to do that because we're going to be talking about some things here that you're going to want to, I think, go back and look more closely at. But I do want to talk a little bit about um, a few passages specifically. And so to sort of set the stage this morning, as Pastor Matt shared with us last week, um, the Israelites. Um, have been in war, in battle against the Philistine army, and uh, they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them into this battle. And it was less out of respect for God and acknowledgement of how powerful God is, unfortunately, that they did that. And it is more um, a sort of almost as a good luck charm. They, they they saw it as like, you know, why not? Let's bring this with us, and uh, it's got to help somehow. And uh, But because their faith in God himself was not there, um, because they just were treating this Ark like maybe a good luck charm or something out of superstition more than anything else, uh, they ultimately are defeated by the Philistines and they capture the Ark and they take it off, which is a really bad thing to do. It's one of those situations of like, uh, wow, we, we could not have possibly imagined that it could have gone that badly. Not only did they lose the battle, but the Ark of the Covenant itself which they see as really containing the Holy Spirit of God, that he has said, I will, I will dwell within this thing so that you know that as long as you have the ark, you have my presence with you, my glory will dwell with you, uh, that itself is gone. So it's one thing to lose the battle. It's another thing to lose, it seems, the God who gives them his glory as well. Um, what we read about after that, right after that, is basically the news getting back home. Um, uh, a messenger comes back, runs back, and brings the bad news um, to Eli the priest. And, uh, and we've heard several times about how, because of how Eli's sons had been, and because of how disobedient these people had been, that these sons were going to die, and they had died. Um, and so as he came back and broke the news to Eli about his sons and about the ark being taken, Eli falls over dead, and uh, so he took it pretty hard. And uh, and then it says that um, Finhas, one of his sons, his 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 widow, she gives birth to a child, and she names him. She names him Ichabod. Uh, not a Bible name that you hear that's people that we're giving to our kids these days right there's like the bible names that we give out pretty freely then there's the bible names that you don't see quite so much you know uh ichabod i would say is one of those uh and so uh she says i will call him ichabod because the glory of the lord has left israel Um, and what she says at the end of chapter 4 of 1st samuel is this we read about the widow of Phinehas, or Phinehas, and after she's given birth and named her child, she says this. She says, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So this is kind of where we're at go, coming into this passage this morning, into these chapters. The, the glory itself of God has departed from Israel. And there is such lament about this that she names her son Ichabod, which means without glory, no glory. The glory sort of, sort of gone from a thing. Um, and, uh, and so as we continue to read on here in, in 1 Samuel, now into chapter 5, and we're going to read just a little bit into here, we're going to see what happens to the Philistines when they take the ark. Spoiler alert, it's not good. So here we go. In 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 4, we read this. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of uh, Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. They obviously thought, "Oh, well, that's strange. He fell down. Let's write him, put him back up, and and uh, and I'm sure that was just an accident." But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Uh, so it happens again. And this time, his hands are cut off. And that doesn't really just happen, right? Um, So they know now that there's something causing this and that it probably has to do with this ark. We then read on. But the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel... Must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and hard against Degon, our God. So this is basically what what happens when they get the ark, and then what we'll, what we'll continue to read about in the rest of these chapters is them returning it. <laughs> it takes it takes this much for them to go. We're sending this thing back. We're getting rid of it. We don't want this. Ark, this thing that we've stolen to be with us anymore, because of look at how God is is punishing us. What He's afflicting on our gods. So for the, the Philistine people to to put him uh, in this temple of the god is 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 something that was common. If they go into battle and they capture something like an idol or a relic or something that's important, they would bring it to their temple. They would add it, put it next to one of their gods. And there's no doubt that part of them doing this is their way of saying this thing is not. Definitely not any better than our God. Our God is superior to this. Dagon was like a, a fertility God. He had the body of a fish, and, uh, but he had hands. And that's why when he lost his hands, it said he only had a trunk, right? There you go. That's why he didn't have any legs. Uh, he had the body of a fish. And the idea was that it kind of represented water. And water at this time in this place is a very big deal. When you talk about fertility, you're talking about like literally the ground and crops and all those things. Because really the idea was no matter how many children that you had uh, for your people, if you didn't have food that you could grow, therefore, uh, then then you could not, you couldn't feed those kids. You couldn't have civilization. You couldn't have a great people. You couldn't be a great people. So their God um, of fertility was a God of water uh, because they needed rain. And they did all that they did for him in hopes that somehow by doing these things, making sacrifices, uh, pledging their, their, their allegiance and their atonement to him, that, that he would give them rain consistently and they would have crops. They believed he was a great God. And so then they bring the Ark of the Covenant in to this temple. And instead what we see is that by merely being there, the Ark, uh, the glory of God would, would make it known that they do not want to just take him um, without him giving himself to them. Now, this is a, a few chapters here specifically about the glory of God, God's glory. And there's a word that, the word that's used here for glory is this word kabod. It's why a kabod means without glory. And uh, kabod, this Hebrew word, uh, translated literally, means uh, it means glory, means honor, splendor, your reputation. So. Uh, when we talk about the glory of God, or, or really the glory of anything for that matter, we're describing the effects that God has on his creatures. We're describing the impact that he has in our lives, and when we experience him and we're in his presence. The Hebrew word that's used here, it, it means these things. And so basically what it's saying is that when someone is glorious and we're in their presence, we admire that person. We, we, we respect that. We, we acknowledge and we see the splendor and the honor of that person. It's very personal, this description of Glory. And so when we, when we talk about uh, someone who's great and that we're impressed by, we would talk about that, how we see them kind of in all their glory, right? For this reason, the halls of great kings were built in such a way that when you entered them, you got a sense of the glory, the splendor, the honor of this person without even having to know them personally, But ultimately, this definition of glory, uh, the one that we're more familiar with uh, in this Hebrew term, uh, is talking in, in terms of people, relationships. And yet the Hebrew people had a much fuller understanding of the concept of glory, and a very different one than we have. And it's one that actually has less to do with things like philosophy and relationships, and more almost to do with, like... Uh, science and the physical world. And what I mean by that is that the way that they ultimately talked about this concept of glory, the effect that God has upon his people and his creation had more to do with the physical presence of, of something great than it did with two people in relationships. This word kabod comes from a root word, and that word is Kabed. And there is a difference there, I promise. Uh, and kabed, the word that this comes from means weighty. It means heavy. It's a burden. This word is translated um, almost, almost overwhelmingly, almost um, sort of it's constantly translated in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language to talk about things that are big, that are weighty, that are heavy, that are a burden. In fact, it even talks about, uh, when it talks about God's, uh, God's glory being heavy on his people, God being heavy upon his people, it is very much, in a sense, not of a relationship that you get to experience with someone who's great, but in a sense of like, whoa, this is so big, it's crushing me, it feels almost oppressive, You see, when relational creatures talk about our creator, a relational God, we're simply trying to describe the way that he affects us as people. But the Hebrew people went so much further than that as they described God as something that affects physically everything around it. Because the glory of something isn't really just tied to how people feel about it. There's something objective about true glory much in the way that in the physical world, something that is physically truly massive uh, is significant, no matter how you feel about it. You can't deny the fact that it's there, and if you know anything about physics, that it has a great impact on all the other things around it that are there. The, The way that you understand this best probably is the concept of weight and the way that it displaces things around it. So, because uh, so, it's not just a matter of, uh, of, of being big and heavy, it's a matter of taking up space. Because all matter takes, in some way, takes up space. And so, uh, so you think about it with liquid, probably the most clearly, uh, really best examples, a cannonball into a swimming pool, obviously. You jump into a swimming pool, and, and, and the space that's being taken up by your body means that water has to go somewhere else. And so, if enough people get in a pool, it overflows. Or if enough toys and kids get in a bathtub, it overflows. Because that stuff has to go somewhere. And the glory of an object, the size of an object, the significance of it, pushes those things out as it comes into a situation. The Hebrew people saw God this way. Yes, they knew that he was relational, and uh, that, that the sig- most significant way that God's presence would affect his creatures, his creation, would be through this relational language, would be in a relational way. And so because of that, glory uh, generally has to do with that, the way we feel about people. But they recognize that he's something even more than that. He has mass. God himself takes up space. This is so important because as we talk about God and as we talk about his glory, we talk about something about him that actually changes and affects all the things around him. Now, why is this so important? Why does this phrase and the idea of the glory of God leaving these people matter so much? And why does it have such an impact on these other people? Well, it's because God uh, desires above all else that he would be glorified. Uh, You see, there is nothing greater for each and every one of us than to glorify God. That's it. That is the, uh, the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man... Is to glorify God. Okay, so that is why we are here. That is why creation is here. And the Bible says that creation itself speaks to God's glory. But there is, there is one uh, ultimate purpose for each and every one of us who are alive and who have been created, and that is that we would glorify God. There is one purpose that all the physical stuff that we see in existence is in existence. Because when God created everything, he did so with the intent, ultimately, that everything would glorify him. And that is the goal. And that is one of the things that. Some of us have the hardest time wrapping our mind around, is the fact that God's ultimate goal, His desire, is not for the well-being of His creation for itself, but it's for Him. God desires not ultimately that we be glorified, although we desire that. What happened when sin came into the lives of God's creation? What happened in the Garden of Eden? What happened all of that? That all is ultimately a situation in which God's creation, so early on, said, Do you know what's better than glorifying God is glorifying myself? That is truly the best way to live, the best goal to live my life towards. So first and foremost, if we talk about God's glory, the thing that Scripture tells us the most clearly and that we have to understand, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, is this, that God's goal is that he would be glorified. This is the God of the Hebrew people, the God of the Old and New Testament, the God of the Bible is a God who ultimately does what he does so that he would be glorified. Now, this explains everything. Now, the thing about uh, a book like 1 Samuel, something in the Old Testament, is that there's two kinds of people who read this stuff. There are people who read it and say, man, that makes perfect sense, right? Oops, they lost the ark. Things aren't going to be good for them. Oh, they thought by stealing the ark it was going to go well. Well, they're going to see because they don't know how God really works, I guess, right? I guess they didn't hear about the Egyptians, even though it seems like they did from what they're saying. Uh, you know, you, you, people who, there, there are those of us who read things in Scripture... And we say, man, that makes perfect sense that that would happen that way. And then there are those who read Scripture and say, why in the world did it happen that way? Or how does this make sense based on the way that I see that the world should be? How do, I make, how do I make sense of these different things that I'm reading? And how do I reconcile these things together? If God loves people, then why do these other things happen? If God's desire is that he would make this great people, then why would he let them lose in battle when they bring the ark? It seems kind of, uh, seems almost petty. It seems kind of uh, a little bit too meticulous. It seems a little bit too almost nitpicky. Uh, why, if God wants these things that it seems like he wants in the Bible, do things go about happening in such difficult To understand ways there are those who look at the bible and say this makes total sense to me and there are those who look at the bible and say this makes no sense to me or this is very difficult to reconcile with the world i see or with reality i think no better is that summed up than by um, one of the most sort of Uh, evangelistic atheists out there today, a man named Richard Dawkins, who wrote this book, The God Delusion, a while ago. Um, And in his book, he perfectly summarizes um, his perspective when he reads the Bible and he sees God. And this is what he says. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, I think that's killing your, your own family member, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is how Richard Dawkins describes the God that he reads about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, you see the fact is, as much as as we recognize, we can admit that that God's goal is that He would be glorified. That we understand, maybe many of us the Bible, many don't understand it. Many look at it and say, "This doesn't seem to line up with other things I'm reading." And the single biggest reason why that happens is because when we approach God's Word seeing ourselves as the ultimate greatest thing in all of creation then we cannot help but walk away seeing this god who claims that 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 the greatest end of all things is that he would be glorified to see that and say that's wrong and that makes no sense because if anything that God does in the Bible that, um, that puts him before his creation, well, that doesn't seem like love, right? That doesn't seem like one who's truly a good creator. There are lots of different ways that you can see what you read about in Scripture. It's one of the reasons why we may see it one way, um, but that doesn't mean uh, that other people will see it that way, and it's incredibly uh, dangerous for us to simply say, "Well, that's just the way I see it," and that's just the way those people see it, and and I can't change that. And that's just the way I feel, uh, because to do that is to essentially say uh, that 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 I'm I write them off, right? If this doesn't make sense to somebody, I don't know what I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to say about that, right? And yet, one of the reasons that Scripture often doesn't make sense to people is because they don't understand some of the basic concepts of what God says about who he is. You could read everything in the Bible, you could memorize all the facts, you could pass any test on it, and yet you cannot understand at all what it is saying, what the God of the Bible is about, who he is, what his heart is for. And if you don't understand those things, it will be very hard to see clearly what it is that he's doing. God's goal is that he would be glorified, and for most people, that is a very hard thing to wrestle with. We want so badly for God's goal to be that we would be glorified. What doesn't make sense to us about this account is that we want for the Israelites to be glorified. We want for God's people above all else, to be glorified. The way we want it to work is that when God picks you or you're his or in some way associated with him, you're the good guy in the story, right? Then the good guy has to win because that's how God wins, right? The good guy has to always do well because that's how we want it to work. Because it's great to think that if I'm on God's side, then that means that now God's end, God's goal, is that I would be glorified no matter what I do. If only it were that easy. But it isn't. God's goal is not that Israel would be great and glorified. His goal is not that any individual person would be great and glorified. He seeks to glorify and lift up and empower and do great, amazing things in our lives and in the lives of his people so that his end goal would be achieved, that he would be glorified. He uses them to show the world who he is. He doesn't just desire to uh, pick a side love them more than anyone else and make sure that they just do well and are happy forever it makes a lot more sense when you see how this concept of god's weight his manifestation works but again it goes back to this 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 issue of what really god's glory is and why in the world it would even matter in the life of people today It mattered a lot to them. You see, in Israel, when God's glory left, that was a big deal and things got very bad. And when it was sort of, when the ark was taken and it sort of brought God in, but not under his terms, that went very badly for them. But we don't think that way about God now, right? We don't think like that, that the presence of God, that, that, that the manifestation of God is gonna somehow have that kind of a effect on our lives today. We, we wouldn't see it that way. We don't think of God that way, but that is ultimately what these chapters are about. They're about what it looks like for God himself to be manifested in the reality that we live in, in his creation. Because even though God is physical, he's not physical. How does he uh, displace things? How does he have weight? How does he have any of that stuff? Isn't that literally the exact opposite of the way that we seem to understand God being today? That I don't experience that God is physically sitting next to me, that he's physically in a room, that somehow he's able to like... uh, Uh, be immaterial, so why would we ever describe him as having that much weight, having that uh, that much power? It's because of the fact that God, whether physically manifested in our world or spiritually manifested, still does the same thing, and it is this. He pushes everything when he's in a situation, and I don't mean he pushes everything away from him. I'm saying he displaces everything, When something large drops into the swimming pool, it affects everything around it. And this is what God does in the lives of a person. God's glory moves everything in our lives. When God is being manifested in any way, whether spiritually, physically, when God is being manifested, things move the effects of that are seen all around where he's being manifested. And the thing about it that's so weird and hard to wrap our minds around is that God, uh, he's, he doesn't, uh, he's not limited by the same things that we're limited by, our physical world. And in a world where we try to prove how things exist by testing and then having reproducible results to those things, uh, God can manifest himself as fire uh, we read about, but then can manifest himself as a cloud, or, or, or he can manifest himself uh, spiritually, but he can manifest himself physically like Jesus. And, and the crazy thing about it is that the fact that God can be fire doesn't mean that he can't be water. The fact that God can be physical doesn't mean that he can't be spiritual, because God chooses how he's going to manifest himself. In any situation, that's why you can't take all the things that you even see manifested about God and put them all together and say, so what that shows us is the things he won't do, not necessarily, or that he can't do physically, not necessarily, and that's a really frustrating thing because it means we can't learn about God the way that we learn about everything else that we just sort of test and then try to make predictions about. Because that's what, that's what a hypothesis and experiments are all about. It's about predictable results. But there is a constant about the way that we experience God's glory today. And that constant is this. When God is manifesting himself... In anything, things start to move. Things start to change, and there is an effect that is seen. There's an impact that is felt. And what that means is that that if God's glory is being manifested in me, in my life, then that's going to start to move things around. I'm going to feel that. In fact, it moves everything in my life. God affects every single part of who we are if we allow him to. If we allow God's glory to be manifested in our lives, then we will see every part of us affected and changed and almost like pushed out in a way and reshaped and reformed. And a lot of times that means pushing out and, and sort of seeing and letting go the things that shouldn't be there in order for God to be there. This is why when we talk about sin and repentance, what we're talking about is what we say is we say, um, if you have this, this desire, this tendency, this habit, this, 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 uh, this addiction, this thing that you feel enslaved to, the way that you get past that thing, that you deal with that sin in your life is not by just doing everything you can to stop doing that thing. That's not the biblical way that you deal with that stuff in your life. That if that stuff is there, and it's taking up space, and it doesn't want to let go, then the only way that that stuff will leave, will be gone, will begin to move, is that the glory of God can be manifested in your life so that there is no longer room for these things. The, the phrase, the, the term repentance does not mean to turn away from, it means to turn back to God, to turn away from something to God. And so what we say is we say the more that you focus on God, the more um, that God is going to be manifested in your life through your worship of him, your love of him, your your ability, your your desires to, to comprehend even simply his love for you, the more that that is manifested in your life, the more that these things will be pushed out because that's what the glory of God does. That is what God does, is he pushes out that stuff in our lives. And the result of that is that every relationship, every ideology, every habit, every tendency, every aspect of our personality, every part of us is changed somehow by God's glory in the very same way that a mountain existing in the middle uh, of an area dramatically changes and reshapes everything about the place that it is in. It changes the way the air moves. It changes the way that, that, that weather works and things grow and the rest of the topography around it because of the very weight and mass of that thing. God's goal is that he would be glorified, and the more that he is glorified in our lives, the more that he is glorified in the lives of other people and in the world, ultimately, the more that he is glorified, the more things will begin to move and change. And so all the stuff that he does here in 1 Samuel, all the stuff that we read about him doing in Scripture, he does so that more people will glorify him. You see, God doesn't just set out and say, here's what I'm going to do. You're the good guys. You're the bad guys. Well, here's a really easy way to deal with that. You're all dead, the end. You're all alive and doing well. What? Those are bad guys dead. Those are bad guys dead. That's it, the end, right? That's not the way that God works. It doesn't bring God the most glory to just instantly kill all the Philistines the moment that they take possession of the ark. It doesn't bring God the most glory to force everyone to uh, bow to him by no choice of their own. It does, not, it does not bring God the most glory. How do we know that? Because he does these other things instead. God says there needs to be a people who show the world what it looks like to actually have a relationship with a loving God who actually is the creator of these things because it is through that that I will be most glorified. That these people need to see certain things manifested in certain ways, and by seeing that, I will be most glorified. We can take confidence in knowing that for good or for bad, that if we knew all of what God knows, that we would be able to see that all of the things that we experience in our lives, we experience these things, Many of them are hard, although so many are good. We experience these things that are ultimately intended to bring God the greatest amount of glory. How can bad things happen to me if God loves me? Why is the suffering so bad, and yet God loves me? How is it possible that the things that I see in the world around me, the things that I see happen, are a reflection of God loving us and what the bible tells us is that if we knew all of what god knows then we would see that all of these things are ultimately what will bring him the greatest amount of glory not us and that's hard first samuel isn't about the israelites being the greatest people and it's not going to be about a king who is the greatest king And it's not going to be about groups of people who are the worst people either. 1 Samuel, like everything else in Scripture, is about a God who is so good and so great that there is nothing better than for everything in creation to ultimately glorify Him. And it's hard because... Uh, the, there's only one place that God is fully manifested, and that's heaven. That's, we talk about, uh, in fact, what the Bible tells us is that if God were ever fully manifested in front, before any of us, it would like kill us. The weight, the weight of him would be so great that we would just be gone. We'd be decimated by it. Our sin would make it impossible for us to exist in his presence. And so because of that, We see, uh, and we see throughout the Bible too, we see these different ways that God reveals himself to people, to his creation, to us, in ways that we can even handle, in ways that we can perceive, things that show us about him. And there is no better example of this than Jesus himself, that in order for God to actually be able to be physically manifested um, um, as one of us... That, that, uh, that there were things about him that had to be essentially veiled. And that's what we see in Jesus. So if the only place that we're ever going to be able to fully experience God's glory is in heaven, and, and, and if we experience that now, it would ultimately crush us, it would kill us, it would destroy us, then, then what we see here, what we see now, is but like a brief glimpse of the greatness and goodness of this God that we worship. Why why are we a people who look ahead constantly, who look ahead, who look ahead? Because we have seen, even in our greatest experiences and awareness and relationship with God, we see but a little of what is to come. Because only some has been even revealed to us because we could even handle it. We read about this in 1 Corinthians when we recently went through a passage on love in 1 Corinthians. um, The very end of that well-known passage talks about how no matter how much we try to love one another, no matter how much we try to live out love for each other, we can do so knowing, we have to do so knowing that even our best efforts, even the best that we experience in love on this earth will be merely uh, a taste of the real love that is found in God and that is found in Christ. We read this at the end of that passage. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. These things that we know, uh, we know in Parts, and we also know that the partial will pass away as the perfect comes. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is such good news to us because what we hear in this is two things. One, that Even the greatest thing that we see of God manifested, even the biggest, most significant way that that His glory and His love is able to displace things in our lives and affect us and shape us, that that is but a small taste of the ultimate goodness, the greatness of what we will see Him to be fully one day ahead, but it's not just about us knowing Him, because you know, we're pretty self-absorbed, and we tend to think a lot about how much we want to be known, about how much we want to be seen, and about how much we want to be heard. In fact, the thought of going through life and not being known by anyone, not being seen by anyone, really, really seen for who we are, is an incredibly lonely and isolating and depressing thought to us. Makes us feel worthless. And what Paul says here is he says, not only are you going to know God fully, but you have been fully known already by God. He fully knows you. He fully sees you. He fully understands you. Even though you only see him in part, even though you only are able to see these things that he manifests to you that are so great, he knows you completely. And some of us, that's the most terrifying thought in the world, right? Right? Okay, wait a second, I want to be known, but hold on, hang on a second, let's be more specific here, okay? Uh, because it's crazy, right? We're, we're, we're a culture that says on one hand we desperately, we, we use phrases like, like, I, like, I see you, I hear you, I, 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 I know you, I, 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 to validate the fact that another person matters to us, and yet we also are obsessed with very carefully curating the way that we are known. The internet's given us like the best way to do this, Right? But we absolutely are obsessed with not being, I mean, completely known, right? There's nothing scarier than the idea of of us being completely transparent, someone knowing everything there is to know about us. What Paul says here is he says, God fully knows you, and you will be fully known then as well. This is good news. This is news that is to lead us to worship and love God. And that's what glorifying him ultimately looks like. God is most glorified when his creation, when we love him and when we worship him. That is what glorifies him the most. Why do we take the time to even say that at this point in this passage, in these chapters? Is because God is not necessarily most, God is not most glorified when the enemies are destroyed. God is not most glorified when the war is won. God is not most glorified when the rules are followed. And He's not most glorified when a person does the best job possible of living so well that they don't even need Him. God is most glorified not when the church is the biggest that it could possibly be, Not when the family looks the best that it could possibly be. Not when the person is the healthiest, safest that they could possibly be. God is most glorified when his creation, all of his creation, loves him and worships him. And that is the ultimate goal. Is that you and I would love and worship him, but also that other people would love and worship him. Which is why as soon as he calls us in and we respond, he sends us out. He sends us out to those that don't yet know about him, don't yet see the way that he's been manifested, aren't aware of that, their eyes aren't open, and and, have, have, and and desperately need for this God to be manifested in their lives so that he could displace the things in them. God is most glorified when his creation loves and worships him. What we read about with the ark is merely a way in which God has said, I am going to create a way for my people to know that I'm present among them. And it's going to be this ark. He gives them a temple. He gives them the Holy of Holies inside the temple where the ark dwells. But that does not mean that God is contained within, physically within the ark, that he's limited by the ark. It doesn't actually mean that because the ark is gone that he isn't able to be in, in Israel if he wanted to be, that he is forced to even be um, in this land where they take him. God isn't limited by those things. But it is God's way of showing his people, saying to them, I, I'm giving you a manifestation of my presence that you can in some way connect with So that you know that I'm there amongst you, I have I have been for you know, we have been playing a lot of board games uh, lately with our family, and um, when you play a board game, uh, you get a little piece, and that's you in that game, right? Now, I don't want to get too philosophical or metaphysical with you guys, but uh, some of you may not know this, and if you don't, you definitely should know this about the way things work. That's not really you, okay? Now, now. That's not how it feels if you're in a game and someone gets mad and they go like that to it, right? Because I've lost it before when that happened. Uh, uh, In fact, uh, my son and I have been playing chess a lot lately. And um, one of the hardest things to do is when you're in checkmate is to knock your king down. That, that's like one of, the, one, of the, one of the most difficult things it seems to do. And we like talk about that every time. And it's like, it's like the rule simple, if you can't do it, then we're never going to play again. Because be, we got to be a good sport, right? And so uh, it's not enough for somebody to say checkmate and then you walk away. All right, fine, whatever. No, it's like the hardest thing ever to knock that king down. Because it's like you're accepting that thing. No, you really get into a game, you really get into a board game, you kind of start to feel pretty connected to that little like red pyramid looking thing that is your piece moving around the board. But it's not actually us, our soul doesn't exist in that thing, and we are not contained by and bound by that thing. Uh, One thing though that is very true, and you learn this when you have kids and you play games, is that if someone flips the board over, um, then the game's pretty much over, right? (laughs) Like, I don't know where you were, where this was, what that was that happened, right? There's so many different analogies for, for honestly, what it looks like for God to say, I'm going to choose something. And I'm going to to tell you that that thing, I will dwell in that thing. That is a representation of me. That That is the way that I am represented here in this reality of this game. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that's me, and that's all there is to me. Know that it's much bigger than that. And know that I'm there in that way because I want to be here with you. I want to interact with you, my creation, right? Um, I mean, if you've ever wanted to play a game with someone and they just didn't want to play and you finally got them to, getting them to put that piece on the board was a pretty big deal. The truth is that God, um, His glory is both a personal thing and a very real physical thing. And the Hebrew people understood this with such depth, and it's such a beautiful concept, the way that it's explained in Scripture, that God himself is so great, he is so weighty, that when he comes into a situation, that first of all, his... his, His his glory is so great that, that nothing could bear up under him. Nothing. Nothing could fully withstand him. But in the same way that we know that he is, that he is present, that he is there, as we begin to see and feel how he's moving the things in our lives. How his glory isn't just some abstract concept that we talk about. It's not just a a picture that you have on the wall of your house, and that's good enough. But it's, if his glory really is his glory in our lives, then it will change and distort and touch every single part of who we are. That is what he does. And it's what he does in the world and in the lives of other people, but he calls us to be the ones to bring the good news to him. The thing about it is, is, there is no... Better manifestation for us where we live now in this life in this world in this way than Jesus Himself. The fact that God uh, would come um, and 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 veil His glory so that we could see Him, so that we could so that we could interact with Him, so that we could encounter Him, and. For all the things that you could ever learn about God and about the Bible, if you don't ultimately interact with Jesus himself, if you don't see him and have a relationship with him, then all of that other stuff is just information. God is something that could be studied like any other thing in creation and nature, and yet it never goes beyond that. But to see Jesus, to read the Gospels, and to see what it looks like for God to be manifested... To see the truth of who He is in that thing and to allow that to shape you, to begin to shape you and change things in your life is the only thing that you can do if you haven't yet done it. Let's pray. Father, we could talk to no end about Your glory. It is really mind-blowing to just think about the fact that... um, we live in this reality where we don't physically see you. And yet, you tell us that you're present in all kinds of different ways. And to be honest, most of us desperately long for your presence. Most of us, uh, we, we pray and ask you to be more present in our lives. We ask you to be more present. Uh, real to us, and yet what your word tells us about you is that the more present you are in the life of a person, the more real you are to a person, the more things in our life get pushed out and pushed away, Lord, that you displace things all around us, and that is a painful process, that is a difficult process for us. And so because of that, as much as we long for and ask for you to be here with us, at the same time, we can fight you being present in our lives because we don't want to allow those things to change. We don't want to allow those things to be touched by you. God, uh, the Israelites were not a perfect people at all. They were a people who seemed to go back and forth again and again in how much they recognized your greatness and your glory. And when they lost sight of the weightiness that you were, of of the reality of you, when they lost sight of that, everything went badly for them. Lord, would you give us, as we worship and praise you in this time, just a glimpse of your glory And would that change us profoundly? And would we experience how much better it is to live for your glory than our own, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.